Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 105. The one about social media ROI, the Rog Vlog creative process, Blackpool Pleasure Beach, and the film Pitch Black. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. This is episode 105, and we are back with more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And my co-host is a digital marketing veteran. He's a speaker, trainer, and advisor with nearly three decades of experience. He enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build online campaigns faster. Please welcome all the way from La France, Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. You've just heard from my co-host, a marketing speaker and consultant, spent his whole career helping his customers keep their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Cat Smiles and Marketing Plans and the creator of the Rogerlog video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, fantastic, Pascal. So episode 105, and we have got a real packed show today. I'm really excited to talk about some of the news items, and I think the content spotlights are going to be really interesting. And in film marketing today, we are going to be talking about a film which I don't think I've seen since its original release. Just give us a quick preview of what we're going to be talking about later. Oh my goodness, we're going to go back into the year 2000 and talk about one of the most important indie sci-fi movies, a story of determination, creative and ingenuity when you have a low budget, you have very little marketing might, what do you do to create your own luck and get the fan base behind you? So we're going to talk about Pitch Black. We're going to talk about Pitch Black, yeah, and I've got vague memories <laughs> and I'm sure that you're going to remind me about it when we get there, but we've got a lot to get through before before we get to Pitch Black Pascal. So let's start off with In The News. And we begin with news from Carlsberg, committing to increasing its marketing spend whilst allocating budgets selectively to drive the best returns and grow its brand, like Australia, San Miguel and Somersby Cider. High and medium sugar food should not have packaging that is appealing to children, says a campaign group, Action on Sugar. They are calling out an evident loophole in the rules which prevents brands targeting children with such products. Mm -hmm. According to Systems One, test your ad platform. Adverts celebrating the Women's World Cup did outperform those aired for the men's tournament in Qatar last year. Advertisers are expected to spend over £20 billion on connected TV in 2023, which is up 13.2% versus 2022. With younger generations turning away from traditional TV towards streaming, CTV is expected to achieve a compound annual growth rate of 10.4% over the next five years. 52% of consumers would like to buy more sustainable home products. However, this is hindered by the perceived cost and whether green claims from brands can be trusted. Gambling represents 15.4% of front-of-shirt sponsorships in professional football. Classified as part of the consumer services category, it is the most popular subsector of front-of-shirt sponsors in the sport. Job title inflation, offering someone the senior job title without the duties that come with it, is increasing within marketing. It could be having a negative effect on attracting the right candidates to the right roles. And only 4% of people appearing in global ads are over the age of 60, according to a study from creative data platform CreativeX. The ads in question represented $124 million in ad spend. 
Pascal, do you like sugary foods? I do. I put far too much sugar in my coffee. Um, interestingly, it is commented upon by all my friends. Uh, like, you've got a sweet tooth, Pascal. You're greedy. You And I say, I know. And living in France, Roger, it's just so, so hard. It's time for me to come back and lose a bit of weight. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I do have a sweet tooth, but I've never put sugar in coffee or tea or anything like that. Uh, but I do like um, sugar puffs, uh, you know, the honey monster and all of that sort of thing, which is, a, I guess, what this um, news item about sugary foods for kids is getting at. Now, we all know that sugar's not really that good for us, and there's been a few um, almost... Uh, call outs over the last decade haven't they? i remember when sunny delight was um you know very very sugary and there was a great big clamor about that to get the sugar removed from that but it just seems to me that that again we we, we come across this a few times when we talk about marketing and, and companies is that they almost seem to have to be forced not to do bad things so it's obvious here that they found a loophole in the rules which allows them to put high and medium sugar foods together for children now this why is that where's the integrity where's the ethics we know sugar sugar's bad why do they exploit these loopholes why don't they just do something healthy i just don't understand the mentality no no and listen i've never worked for you know the consumer brands that will be kind of um, you know approaching their marketing but i've heard back from people working there they say literally there's a meeting taking place and people weigh the pros and cons and the backlash and they, they look at the excel spreadsheet and they go well on balance we will eventually get caught out we will eventually have to retract but the revenue generated during yeah. that period of of time where the loophole is open to us is worth the aggro and we'll put somebody to one side for the pr kind of crisis management and 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 this just desperate and i think those brands are very lucky that in general because of the abundance of information consumers will forget who you know the, the bad players and those who have been misbehaving are but yes yeah, let's take in the obvious i mean how long did it take for kind of uh, pressure groups to get you know the, the sweets off the teal area and and the cashier is only you know where because you're waiting for minutes and then you have all the the sweets on display at the right height for the kids to kind of um, you know want them and pay them and they've got those colorful packaging and and parents you know had to fight for a very very long time for supermarkets to get rid of that yeah and uh, you just wish that companies would have a little bit more integrity you know maybe there's maybe it's, it's cheaper just to load things up with sugar um and i suppose there's almost an element of let's get the kids addicted to this stuff so that they really bug their parents more and more to buy it for them but uh, i mean it's not just food though we see it in all all sorts of industries if there is a loophole and we can make more money out of it then we'll we'll exploit that loophole and you know it just it just winds me up a little bit um the other one that i was really interested in is this whole job title inflation thing um, and I actually had to do a little bit more research to try and work out what it is. But this is where you'll get somebody promoted to a, a title, which is like senior vice president or or global senior vice president. But actually, they have maybe the responsibilities of what we might have once called a senior marketing assistant or a marketing consultant or a marketing executive. And it almost just seems that they're trying to massage people people's egos with 
seemingly elevated job titles just to get them into relatively junior roles. And and again, it, it just seems to me that, you know, we are in the business of promoting something and telling people what our products do, what they say on the tin. And if we if we can't even explain jobs correctly, if we have to embellish that, again, it just, no wonder, no wonder the marketing profession is 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 lambasted by people because we seem to be doing this sort of thing more and more. You know, I had to look it up as well because I was <laughs> thinking, what, what what does that mean? And this actually was called down by the uh, just you know because of the search results on the on on the search engine. But as early as twenty twenty, by the Economist, they had an article called "The Scourge of Job Inflation." And it's peaked really um, last winter, and then it's been carrying ever since. And I was thinking, well, why on earth would you want to do that to yourself? It's back to our earlier comments. Why cause yourself trouble that down the line you're going to have to deal with? I mean, I would hate to be part of the HR division having to cope with the chaos that would ensue because literally, you're right, the practice is to give somebody you know, the initial of head of or VP of or director of and so on without necessarily having the years of experience to be able to even be qualified as such, but they don't get the salary, they don't get the authority, they don't get the decision-making process, they don't get the budget. And according to the article, this really started twofold. There were startups who wanted to appear to be bigger than they were, or wanted to get, obviously, the recognition and, more importantly, raising finance so they would give themselves titles. And you may remember two years ago, there was founders and co-founders everywhere on LinkedIn and, and more. So the startup you know, uh, ecosystem was part of that. And then, of course, you had this idea of, if we're going to present um, the, the delivery team to a paying customer, let's give everybody some inflated titles so it sounds more impressive. But two, three years later, you end up with complete chaos where you have people with, uh, with a complete mismatch between title and salaries. And then when they want to uh, recruit, of course, you know, the younger marketer, and, and in fact, as drop inflation is true across all divisions, the younger marketer is then expecting to be promoted again. But where do you go from being a young director? You know, well, you can't become the CEO of an organization, so you've got nowhere to go. But more importantly, your salary is also far, far too low. It's a mess, Roger. It is. And, you know, one of the things that we've said before is that the it's a sort of dilution of the marketing profession. Uh, and, Again. And, and a lot of the time, we don't even see a marketing director sitting on a board around the C-suite table anymore. And there's no wonder if you've got a senior vice president but who is actually really only doing the job of a marketing assistant, of course they're not going to be sat at the C-suite table. But with that title, you can, it's almost a catch-22 situation, isn't it? We're, we're just devaluing the profession and making it harder for people to sit at the C-suite table. But marketing absolutely has to sit there because it is a strategic role but this is one of those sort of little uh, contributory factors to the the dilution of the marketing profession and uh, again um, it's sad and we we need to see if we can reverse it and start bringing real you know professionalism back and get people sat at the c-suite table but this doesn't help 
It doesn't help. And you and I and many others out there, you know, we can try to be the voice of reason and, and bring and open the, the, the debate. But we've got to be very, very careful because you're right. You know, it took so long for marketers to earn their seat at the boardroom table. And it, it, with every passing month, we are, we are losing. We're losing grounds and, and we've got to find a way to reverse the trend. Yeah. And the last one I wanted to talk about, Pascal, was this whole idea of only 4% of people appearing in global ads over the age of 60. And, and this is interesting because it reminded me of a conversation I had with a fitness brand recently. And this fitness brand is absolutely obsessed with appealing to Gen Z, Gen Z, if you're listening to this in America. And they want to pile all their marketing spend into Gen Z advertising. But the problem is, is that a lot of Gen Z people haven't got the disposable income to spend. And it, you could argue that if they pile all their advertising into the younger age groups, then they're not actually going to get anybody to come and spend money on their products. And yet, here you've got this cohort of people, the, the over 60s, who are a lot of the time just as lively and just as energetic um, as, as people who are younger, maybe a little bit slower, but still still as energetic, who have got the money to spend, maybe. They've spent a life saving money. They may have paid off their mortgage and have a house. They may have value in their house. Um, and yet we're not targeting the older people. Maybe there's a bit of ageism creeping in there. I don't know. But again, you've got to target people who are going to be able to afford what you offer. Um, what do you think of that? Well, you know, of course, we're going to be talking about strategy. And it reminds me, actually, one of my very, very early lessons in, in business development and marketing was at uni. And we, were, we had those charter matrices where basically, bluntly, Roger, you go where the money is. Yeah. And then you craft a solution and the and, and the uh, and the product accordingly. So, so I think you know it may well be that all those years ago, your offer and your marketing for a particular target audience was indeed it was a strong business case. But I think the business case has changed. What I will say is um, watching. French television and UK television, we're seeing a lot more now French television that older age group for different mm. products and, and so on. Or suddenly there is more, more or, or, of a mix because you're right, you know, and, and I think you've got to then question those who are in charge of communication. Are they, do they lack experience and life experience as well? Are they perhaps of a younger demographics and they fall into the trap of creating products and campaigns that suits their preferences as opposed to, as I would say, the customers in charge of your, of your marketing but goodness in 2023 to be 50 60 and even 70 is not what it was 50 years no. ago and no. uh, on that basis i would even i said people i would challenge anyone to join one of roger's uh, fitness boot camp <laughs> and last the full hour because you are approaching as i am of course that um, that age of the 60 onward and we are so much fitter so much more nimble and actually as well very nimble compared to people that you know were around 30 40 50 years ago and let's nimbly move on then pascal <laughs> to the next part of the show which is content spotlights and i think we've got some real good ones to talk about this week so let's move on to content spotlights In this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content that's caught our attention. It could be a podcast, could be an article, could be a video. So, Pascal, what are you going to talk about this week? 
Well, Roger, if you've looked, and I know you have, at the show notes, you will see that there's a big blank against my name, suggesting that perhaps I've not chosen something. But I have. It's just a bit of a surprise. Now, for viewers and listeners, pretty much every Sunday lunchtime with my wife, Denise, we have a routine of having a bacon sarnie and watching television. Now, bacon sarnie, the French was it's French baguette and really poor imitation of English bacon. But it's lovely. We go on YouTube on the big telly and we enter the phrase, Rod's vlog. And <laughs> the surprise, Roger, is my selection for this week is the latest two episodes of Rod's vlog. I want to kind of <laughs> ask you about the how, you know. So I've chosen um, the, the one you did about why do trains stop at Stow? Is that the right pronunciation? It's actually, it's actually pronounced ah. Stow. Stow. Sorry. So why do trains stop at Stow? What makes it a must village in the Scottish Border Railway? And I want to talk about the great travel battle, car versus train, when you and Mrs. E raced your way to Penrith. You were in the train, <laughs> she was in a car. But uh, generally, uh, as a learning point, I I'm really, really keen to, to delve into the house. If we begin with the first one, why do trains stop at Stow? Can you just Take us through the, the the planning process, the research process. Why did you decide to do it? And then we'll talk about the filming element afterwards. Yeah, I think um, um, the Borders Railway is a um, is relatively new. Um, it's only been opened since 2015. And in fact, it existed way back in the 1960s, and it was one of the casualties of the Dr. Beeching cuts. Now, um, if you don't know what the Dr. Beeching cuts are, it was a it was a MP who was tasked with effectively chopping a vast uh, percentage of the railways in the UK, because at the time they thought, you know, the car is the future. Uh, and so Dr. Beeching came in with his great big um, axe and wiped out overnight loads and loads, hundreds of train lines, local train lines, and the Borders Railway from Edinburgh all the way down to Carlisle was completely wiped out. Now, of course, um, nearly um, 60 years later, I think we're regretting that decision because cars are much more polluting than than trains, etc. And it would be great if they could have all of those railways back again. Fortunately, they are starting to reopen some of these railways. The Borders Railway opened back in 2015. It doesn't go all the way down to Carlisle. It goes to a place called Tweedbank, which is about halfway. Now, I went on that that when it first opened, and the train stopped at this place called Stow. It's spelt S-T-O-W. There is a Stow down in England, but the one in Scotland, this one, is actually pronounced Stow. And the train stopped there, and I thought, I wonder why it stops here, because there doesn't seem to be anything here, whereas all the other stops along the route are either commuter towns or you've got Gala Shields, which is a, is a market town down in the borders, which is really quite pretty. So when I was thinking of ideas for um, the vlog, I thought, let's actually get off the train at Stow and have a wander around and see what there is, because there must be something there. There must be a reason why this train stops there. Uh, and of course, it was all pretty much um, me getting on the train, going down to this village and walking around and seeing what I could find. Now, obviously, I'd done a bit of research in, in advance about the, the landmarks, so I could actually talk authoritatively about them. But really, it was genuinely me getting off the train and saying, right, let's have a wander around and see what we can find. Well, what I think is brilliant and um, why I, I want people to 
check the the hyperlink on the show notes and look at it is the structure so you you, you have the opener with you talking to camera and um, but with leading questions and then you know you reveal uh, pretty much you know what, what you set up to do and then you have the conclusion so you've got the, the structure one thing that i need to, uh, some advice on how do you to do two things so well how do you get the the eye line to look right into the lens into the audience so well because i struggle with that a lot and your narration is just outstanding i mean this time we watch a rock to rock with denise we just completely uh you know i would say amazed from the point of view of but it, it just feels like You've done just enough research, but it's also a very natural conversation you have with the audience. So, yeah, how do you get the eye to look right into the lens for all of us who struggle with that? And how do you get this narration to be so natural? Well, um, the eyeline thing is quite interesting. One thing that constantly annoys me about YouTube videos, and and this this criticism is actually aimed at people who have millions of subscribers and have done many many more videos than me is that some of them don't look at the camera when they're talking and and i know what they're actually doing they're probably looking at the screen if they've got a big camera you know the flip out screen they're probably looking at that now i don't know whether they mistakenly think that by looking at the screen it will make them be looking at the lens itself or whether they're just wanting to look at the screen so they can make sure that they keep themselves in shot. But if you look at the screen, you're not looking at the lens and therefore you're not looking at the audience. You'll be looking off in the, in one direction or the other direction. And I just think it, it doesn't feel very personal. Um, it's a bit like those interviews you have on televisions where they have politicians looking over that way. And, and it almost also look, almost looks as if they're talking to somebody over your shoulder and not directly to you. So I just make an absolute um, uh, effort to, look directly into the camera lens and that means you've got to decide you've got to find out where the camera lens is now obviously in a big camera it's obvious where the lens is but if you've got something like an iphone or a, a mobile device like that or, or a gopro you know you've got to actually you could actually get um one of those little paper circle things you know that used to reinforce the binders <laughs> on pieces of paper you can actually stick one of those over the lens so that you can actually see where it is and then focus your attention on that the um the narration is a is a much more difficult one because um you might be surprised to to find that i don't actually write anything down but what i tend to do is go over it in my head quite obsessively maybe the day before or the night before so that it's all in there uh, and and then when i actually get to the location i may I'm, i i somehow i'm able just to deliver it um as as a as a as a monologue or whatever it is the downside of that is that often if i do the delivery and then say mess it up towards the end i very rarely actually manage to deliver it the same way i always end up tending to be a little yeah. bit different so sometimes i do have to jump cut it if i make a mistake because i can't redo the whole thing um up until the point of the mistake because i probably would say it differently so it's maybe not as impressive as it looks pascal <laughs> well, well i think it is because 
you have the broad stroke uh, and then it's essentially being inspired by the environment, the journey, because I'd imagine that the story must reveal itself somewhat during the filming as well. So you, you, you have an idea, but then it's when you're there, when you have the footage, which gives me an elegant segue into the great travel battle, <laughs> car versus train. So you were on the train, Mrs. It was in the car, and you raced to Penrith, is that right? That's correct, yes. Um, a couple of questions. The first one, there's a, there's a scene at the very, very start after the intro where the, the car is seen driving over the camera. Yes. And honestly, I nearly screamed because I, I was thinking I had this idea of the car being hit, the, sorry, the camera being hit by the car. Did you measure things? Did you, were you very careful that you didn't want to destroy <laughs> your video equipment? Yeah, I mean, that, that was the GoPro. So obviously the oh, GoPro is right. really quite small. So it was obviously put on the floor. And then the only thing to make sure was we drove directly over it and we didn't manage to get it underneath one of the tyres. But yeah, it does look pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> so after that, so you had, on this one, you had, I would say, two cameras. You had, obviously, your journey by train and then Mrs. E's journey in the car. Yeah. What I will say is I felt, I felt it was a lot of work because in the car in particular, there was multiple um, shots and angles. Um, did you plan that in advance and did you have to, to give directions, literally? Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because... I. Uh, I gave Trisha the GoPro after we'd filmed the bit where we drove over <laughs> it. Uh, and for the main, the GoPro was actually on a on a suction cup stuck onto the, the windscreen of the car pointing forward over the bonnet so you can see the road ahead. Uh, there were a few occasions um, when Trisha talked straight to camera. Uh, she actually had to take the GoPro off the off the suction cup mount and pointed to her face to record those those instances. But I'll have to admit that we did cheat a little bit because some of the the um, shots of Trisha driving and saying things like uh, we're we're uh, we're looking for um, Eddie Stobart lorries or um, we we're going to stop here. We actually filmed those on the way back, and I reversed the. Um, the uh, film to make it look like she was traveling in the right direction and if you look very very carefully in one of the shots not only can you see my elbow in the corner of the shot but you can also see my bag on the back seat of the car which sort of gives the game away a little bit so oh, i've given you, did... i've given away a trade secret there movie magic <laughs> and your own version of adr this is just brilliant. <laughs> so actually let's talk about this then did your heart sink a bit during the editing process so have you learned to move on with the uh, perfect imperfections and get on with the editing and get it out there yeah absolutely i mean maybe maybe a few years ago i would have i would try to have worked out how to mask the, the bag on the back seat but i figured that pretty much nobody who was watching it apart from maybe you would have spotted that mistake so so we went there but i mean it was actually a really hard vlog to 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 edit together because i, I wanted it to be in almost like in real time, which is why I kept having the, the timing sh flash up onto the screen. So it was 10.30, 10.35, et cetera. Uh, and, and actually getting all the footage I'd recorded with my camera and all the footage that Trisha had recorded, and then obviously making sure that I kept the, the timestamps and then arranging them in the right order. And, and, and it, it just, it did take a long time. It, it, I was really pleased with the outcome, but yes, it was, it was perhaps one of the most uh, time consuming vlogs to edit. 
That's super. But listen, everyone, there you have it. Some kind of inside and inside the look into Rog Vlog, which has been mentioned now for the past three years. I think it was high time to kind of surprise you. I hope you didn't mind if, uh, this as a selection for the content spotlight. But time is against us. So we must move on with your selection, if you don't mind, Roger. No, not at all. So I'm going to talk very briefly about an article that I came across this week, which is called Ask Buffer. Buffer is that uh, social media scheduling platform that people can schedule posts on anything from Twitter to LinkedIn to Pinterest and to Instagram or whatever it is. And the main heading is how many social media platforms should a small business be active on? It's by Kirsty Lang. And the reason why I chose this is I was having a drink with a friend of mine who I used to work with in big corporate a few years back. And he was telling me that they are, their marketing people have actually made a decision to stop using social media entirely. And so that means there's no more official Twitter or X or whatever they call it now. There's no more tweeting. Um, they have spent a lot of money over the years on Twitter advertising. A lot of it's more broadcast uh, as opposed to social interaction. Um, but they've decided that their official Twitter feed will no longer effectively do anything. And that's because they found that the reach has absolutely and utterly plummeted, even with the advertising that they've been spending quite a lot of money on. It's just plummeted. And they've even, they're even saying the same about LinkedIn. They're just not getting the interaction. They're not getting people commenting. They, you know, I've said to you a few times in the past, I sometimes think I'm shadow banned from LinkedIn because some of my posts get absolutely zero um, pick, pick up. And that this is a company saying the same thing, not only about their company page, but also about their executives that, that post. On, on LinkedIn as well. And so this article really caught my attention because it's almost saying how many social media platforms should you be on. And the great thing about this is it gives you a bit of a reminder of the size of the audiences on each of the, of the um, social media platforms. So that's the first thing. I mean, this is a really long article, Pascal, and we really haven't got time to go into it. But it's something like, you know, the monthly active users on Facebook is 2.9 billion, for example. And yet, on X or Twitter, it's only 436 million. And we know that that is a massive, massive, massive difference. So right from the start, you can see what the potential reach might be. And then what this article does is it will go into each of the social media platforms. It will tell you how many active users there are. It'll tell you the breakdown of genders. It'll tell you the, the dominant age group. Is it 18 to 29 year olds? Is it 60 to 65 year olds? Whatever it is. And then it will tell you the sort of content that works best. So, you know, ironically, what works best on Instagram now is reels as opposed to photographs, which is what um, Instagram was originally designed for. Um, on um, YouTube, you know, it says that the short, shorts are becoming more popular, but long form content is still where it's at. And I guess the, the conclusion of the article is, as it should be, you should go where your customers are. And therefore, you, it, it just reinforces the fact that you need to know who your customers are. And 
that's where you want to target them. But I think the only downside of this article and what I think would have made it just the go-to article for deciding on who to target and where to target and what to be on, it doesn't really make much mention of the algorithm for each of these social media platforms. And I think that that's where we are now. And that's why I companies like the, the one that my friend's working for have decided, you know what, it's not worth our time anymore. It's not worth people posting or it's not worth us spending on ads because it just maybe it just doesn't work. And I would love for Kirsty or, or somebody at Buffer to almost like follow this article up and do an analysis of the algorithm for each of these social media platforms, because that I think, rather than the size of the potential audience, is the question that people should be asking these days. Thank you very much for this selection. And, and I think the timing is impeccable because now people should be looking at strategies again, they should be looking at data. And listen, you know, I've been kind of facilitating meetings where it is heartbreaking for somebody, a brand or a team of content creators to realize that the, what they enjoy thoroughly, which is to create valuable content, to um, think it through, to make it visually appealing, but also to have the right impact. It's heartbreaking to realize that you're going to have to move on from that platform, not necessarily move on from the content, but this platform, because of this algorithm, which is going for popularity, not quality. So, you know, like here, I despair to see on LinkedIn, someone talking about you know, the weekend away with their dogs on LinkedIn is getting all the, you know, the, the feedback and the comments and the likes and whatever, and therefore is, you know, taking away from what LinkedIn is meant to be, to be doing. And there's one thing about the LinkedIn algorithm, if I may, just very, very briefly, where if you read the official kind of blog post from the engineering team and working at LinkedIn, they'll say to you, we want some thought-provoking article. We want some case studies. We want educational. So they make the whole list of things but I'm yet to see any of that appearing on my home feed because what I'm getting <laughs> is that kind of populist, you know, information. Close the bracket. So, so I think you know, you're right. People like Buffer and many others can give you the framework for a rethink, but the rethink which is informed by data. And if the data sadly says, if I take it back to a time before the internet, where you know, which is where I began and you did, if you learned that a magazine that you used to work with, whether with press release, editorial content, advertising, if you if you learned that they were losing their readership, you would move on without a second thought. And I think we've got to effort to extract ourselves from that emotional entanglement of enjoying the pursuit of being on Facebook or X or Instagram and so on. You've got to look at hard data and make some tough, tough decisions. I, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It, and, and those decisions will, they will be tough. Um, but I think we are getting to the stage now where we, we just have to ask these questions. Do we need to be on these social media platforms if the result is not raising awareness of our products, getting sales in, adding to the, the bottom line revenue? I'd be really interested to hear what you think out there, those of you who are listening to the show, those of you who are watching the show, have you had this experience yourself on the social media platforms that you've been using for all these years? Have you discovered that reach is so low now that actually you're considering moving away from it? I think it'd be really interesting. So talk to us in the comments below on YouTube or look us up on Twitter or I, I, I still, I'm gonna call it Twitter, 
Pascal. Of course we I'm are. Fed up. Of course we are. <laughs> uh, look us up on Twitter and let's have a conversation about this because I really think it's very interesting. Okay, Pascal, as always in the show, we always pay tribute to the people from the past who have trailblazed and invented stuff, which allows us to live our lives as we do today and allows us to be the marketing professionals that we are today. Let's go back in time to this week in history. And in 1887, German-American inventor Emil Berliner files for a patent for his invention of the lateral cut flat disc gramophone. Well, today it's called the record player. <laughs> in 1923, the Big Dipper opened at Blackpool Pleasure Beach in the United Kingdom. This wooden roller coaster was designed by John Miller and was one of the first roller coasters to use what were known as upstop wheels, which effectively stop it from flying off the track as it goes over the top of a hill. And this roller coaster recently celebrated its 100th anniversary with a marketing campaign and a big party. Wow. Well, in 1983, Macrovision releases the Analog Protection System, also known as CopyGuard, a system of coding that will prevent you and I, VCR users, from making their own copies of VHS tapes at home. Oh, and in 1995, Microsoft rolled out its new operating system, Windows 95. Gosh, I remember that. Many retails, retailers held midnight parties for those who wanted to get their hands on the CD-ROM as soon as possible. <laughs> My goodness. So, Pascal, it's interesting, isn't it? You and I have both chosen a news item here which involves somebody filing for a patent. So you've mentioned Emil Berliner, who filed the patent for the gramophone, and, of course, John Miller who um, was a roller coaster designer actually filed a patent for this thing called the upstop wheel which i'll talk about in a moment but first of all tell us about record players well for me the the memory is about this being um, a birthday present for my 10th birthday now, number 10 is important isn't it? You, you're you're fast approaching the teenage years but it's double figure and I remember to this day this massive box on the um, um, kind of dining room table, and I kind of ripped open the wrapping paper, and there was this red box with this kind of strange fastening system. And then when I managed to unlock it, the top bit was the speaker, and then there was revealing itself. I could almost you know, hear music in the air revealing itself, the record player. And that sadly... Uh, I don't know whether it was an oversight on my parents' part or they, they couldn't get access to uh, records to play. So I, go, I had to go and see our neighbours <laughs> to ask them for whatever they could lend me. And my very first record for my first record player was a Sasha Distel um, <laughs> 45 in our tour, um, which was about some fire in Brazil. And I played it over and over again, probably making my parents demented. Hence, that, that weekend, they went to buy me some uh, records for my age but what is interesting about the um, flat disc gramophone this was in direct competition with the other form of gramophone invented by edison which was more of a cylinder uh. and the the two were competing so whilst edison got you know the because you had a 
better PR agent, I reckon. But obviously, you know, the, the, the headlines, it is that thanks to Emil Bellina that we have the flat disc gramophone, which is essentially the ancestor of the CD and everything else that yeah. we use now, you know, that being flat as opposed to being a cylinder. Can you imagine if the other things have gone the other way? Would I have cylinders now for the CDs, for yeah. our PlayStation video games and that kind of things? But one thing I didn't know until I kind of looked deeper into it, Berliner knew enough about marketing that you had not only to file the patent, but create a trademark and a logo. And surprisingly, the logo that was invented for his flat disc gramophone was a picture of a dog listening <laughs> to his master's voice. Wow. Isn't wow. that amazing? And yeah. then he got bought up by RCA, then he got bought up by somebody else. So all these kind of layers of you know buying and mergers and so on are masking essentially sometimes the history and the origin. So all of you as listeners, if you're getting extra points on the, on the next pub quiz or kind <laughs> of um, guessing game, you're very welcome. But Emil Berliner, thank you very much. So that's 1887, everybody. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. I mean, the power of history is something I talk about in the vlogs. And Blackpool Pleasure Beach, not only is it one of the most popular um, and famous fairgrounds, amusement parks, theme parks, whatever you want to call it, in the United Kingdom, one of the reasons I like going back there, not only is it because it's where I grew up, and when I was younger, I used to spend so much time on Blackpool Pleasure Beach. You wouldn't believe it. I often went every day when I was a teenager. But it's actually an open-air museum for amusement park rides. Wow, okay. Now, the, you know, the Big Dipper was built in, 20, in 1923, so it's 100 years old. There's a ride there called the Flying Machines, which was designed by a guy called Hiram Maxim. And that opened in 1904, um, and it's basically a massive roundabout where the where these rockets basically hang from the roundabout on gigantic chains, and it spins round. And because of this, it, as it spins round, these boats go right out and fly out at the sides. Uh, and that was built in 1904. I mean, that's just astonishing and there there are other rides there that were built in the 1930s some built into the 1960s some built into into the 1970s so you've got this open air history of amusement park rides but you can still go on them i think that's the the most amazing thing um so i went actually went back down to blackpool this week because i knew it was the 100th anniversary of um, blackpool pleasure beach now uh, ironically i'd read read that they were holding this big event this coming saturday and i didn't want to go down on a saturday because i have things to do on a saturday classes to teach and it's family time um but as it turned out the actual anniversary was the day that I was there, uh, and they had a massive little mar a massive marketing campaign where they mailed out to a lot of real theme park enthusiasts. And there was cupcakes, there were fireworks, there were certificates being given out for people who'd ridden the ride on its 100th anniversary. And it was just like a real sort of carnival atmosphere. But I think the main thing for me, and you will eventually get to see the vlog, but I took so much footage that there's actually going to be two episodes on this one. Otherwise, it'll probably get a little bit too long. You'll see that whole open air museum thing and how fascinating it is to see how over a de over a hundred years 
rides have developed and we're not just talking about roller coasters here we've got roundabouts there are ghost trains there are uh, other other uh, incredible things to see as well so yeah that is the real power of history there you know listening to you uh, my memory goes back to when denise and i went to blackpool and went on the big dipper maybe 20 years ago yeah I have to tell you, it felt like I was on something built in 1923. <laughs> I, as as the, this thing was going up and up in the air, and more Blackpool was revealing itself as we were gaining height, I remember turning to Denise and say, this was a very bad idea. <laughs> and, and I'm ashamed to say, I closed my eyes all the way thinking, this is a day I'm going to die on foreign soil. <laughs> and what will my parents say and think? Because it was just so, I don't know, it just felt so unsafe, so rickety, and it was all wood. And, and the bar in front of me felt so uh, tiny and not, not particularly safe. Um, so that was the one time I went on a big dip. I don't even deserve the certificate because I was such so, such a cowardly attempt uh, at using it. But uh, you know, you're right in terms of how they. For me, what is important to note is that they could have gone ahead and destroy it and get yes. rid of it and replace it with brand new, but they wanted to have a sense of a history, and now we need to upload that. Yeah, I think we were. I mean, you know, it's still as rickety and as shaky as it ever was. <laughs> I think they have actually uh, retracked part of it to try and make it a bit smoother. But yeah, it, it's, it is no different to that day that you, uh, you had your bouncy ride with your eyes closed. So yeah, great to reminisce about that. So Pascal, let's come right back up to date and let's talk about marketing, tech and apps. So, Pascal, tell us about the marketing tech and apps that you've discovered this week. Now, that's interesting because during the content spotlight, you mentioned about social media and some of the rethinking that we're having because of the poor performance of some of the platform for some of the brands. And what we're seeing as a result is a return to long-form content, return yeah. to nurturing website about marketing, creating really an experience based on your effort in content. So, what people are having to relearn now is to almost either brief themselves internally, if you're sort of preneur or part of a team, or to brief, of course, their you know content creators. And people say, "Oh, that's a struggle," you know, sometimes to put together um, the request, you know, to, to somebody. So I came across two AI-powered platforms that they're to create, if you like, the beginning of a briefing document to somebody else or to yourself. The first one is called Tome T O M E dot app. A double P. And the second one is called, which I love, perplexity.ai. Yeah. And these are to be used as digital assistant. They will not write the content for you. And Roger and I have made our views very clear about you know the copy and paste job that's going on at the moment. But what is lovely is you put together a request. So I did a test on both tome.app and perplexity.ai. I wanted to write an article about the history of VHS cassettes. Very, very briefly, my claim to fame is at one time in the 90s, roughly, I had a very large VHS cassette collection, um, more than 2,000. Wow. And the insurance company refused to insure my VHS cassette collection. Uh, I even made the headlines in the Evening Chronicle of Newcastle just for that, which wasn't very wise to think about it because the baddies could have then gone to my house thinking, is the guy with all the VHS cassette? But back to the AI-powered app, 
I put the request in, you know, three, four lines of text, um, almost like a, a very mini, um, very mini brief. And both Tom.app um, and Perplexity came up with actually the structure and the subheaders that would really be a source of inspiration. But they even came up with a title, and the title proposed by Tom.app is Rewinding Time. A journey through the history of VHS cassettes. That's pretty neat, <laughs> isn't it? And then you've got all, all, all the different sections you would expect from the birth, the rise, the impact, the decline. There was some lovely suggestions from Perplexity, which I think is more advanced than Tom.app. But there was things like, you know, discuss how the ease of use of VHS tapes led to concerns over copyright infringements. You have almost like a mini subject to get into, you know, explain how the introduction of DVDs led to the decline of VHS. You've got all those being listed as headers and subheaders to inspire you for your next long form content. <laughs> That's really funny. I'm just thinking back now. Um, how many VHS tapes did you say you had? 2,000? Uh, more than 2,000. More yeah. than 2,000. No, I didn't have as many as that, but I still had a stack. And great minds were thinking alike, uh, alike even back then, Pascal, because I too wrote to my insurance company and said, Will all these VHS tapes be covered? And uh, they, I got exactly the same answer. Sorry, mate. No, we're not prepared to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, isn't it? Isn't it bizarre? And that also that we were valuing our VHS tapes probably more than rings and jewellery and um, TV sets and stuff. That's right. Yes. Other. My content spotlight's a bit all over the place. Uh, my, my marketing tech and apps a bit all over the place this week, uh, but. I, I just had to talk about this one. I come across an app which is called Embody Me's Expression Chat. And this is an example of one of the darker sides of AI, I think. And there's even an article which I've put a link to in the in the notes. And the heading of the article is this creepy AI app lets you talk with a photograph of anyone. Mm. And basically you upload a photograph, could be of your if you your wife or, or husband it could be of your mother and father it could be of a dead person it could be abraham lincoln i guess or anybody you like and then the they animate the ai animates the face so that it looks like it's talking and then it will use chat gtp to actually have a conversation with you and I've seen all sorts of apps like this. You know, you can get virtual girlfriends or virtual boyfriends that will talk to you. You can even get virtual um, psychologists and virtual therapists. And I do worry about this because people might be conned into thinking that they're genuinely talking to real people when, in fact, it's all this AI, which is just basically predicting a load of words that might come next that's not showing you any empathy it doesn't understand you as a person and how you feel and I, I just worry about where this might go in terms of the mental health of people um, I mean there's even you know if you dig deeper into this it's almost like saying you can have a conversation with your dead father or your your dead grandfather now that would be really quite upsetting, I would have thought, for some people rather than comforting. And of course it isn't. And it shouldn't be portrayed like that. And I just I just don't think that this is a, a good use of, of AI. And again, I'd be really interested to see what viewers and listeners of Two Geeks think about this this week. And and to finish on a more cheery note, the other 
um, app that I came across this week is called MuseList, and this is this is produced by somebody who got a bit fed up with Apple Music and how bland the Apple Music app looks. So this guy has actually created something called MuseList, which basically taps into Apple Music. But it takes you back to those days when you used to have a cassette tape and you used to put together a mixtape for your lover or your your, um, friends. And you know how we used to record either off the radio or off records, put them on a cassette tape, write mixtape on it and hand it over to to your, your friend. This allows you to do the same, but it imports all these visuals off cassette tapes and, and effectively uh, grafts it over Apple Music. And it's just lovely. It's a bit nostalgic and it makes you think back to those days when we used to have to physically record stuff onto tape. And I just love it. Yes, that's what we had to do. There was no text messages and sending <laughs> some strange emojis to express your affection to somebody else. You had to work hard, put together a mix mixtape, and of course, have your heart broken if you was rejected. I'm not talking about personal experience, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pascal. Always good to talk about the tech, also good to talk about the apps, but we finally reached the segment of the show, which I know that both you and I adore. It's film marketing. We're going to talk about Pitch Black right after this. Yes, this week we're going to talk about the film Pitch Black from back in the year 2000. Pascal, you chose this film. I haven't seen this film since it was first released, so I'm a little bit in the dark, no pun intended, about what we're going to be talking about this week. But before we talk about it, let's watch the trailer. They say most of your brain shuts down in cryosleep. All but the animal side. Guess that's why I'm still awake. He's gone, he's gone. Why should he bother us? Maybe to take what you got. Maybe to work your nerves. Is he really that dangerous? Only around humans. Zeke! All you people are so scared of me. But it ain't me you gotta worry about now. Whatever it is, it got Zeke and it nearly got me! They seem to stick to darkness, so if we stick to daylight, we should be all right. everybody out here.
You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Actually, that does bring back a few memories now. I had it in my head, Pascal, this was a vampire film. It clearly isn't a vampire film. What is Pitch Black about? Oh, do you know, this is like, you know, the ultimate sci-fi horror movie made by fans for the fans. <laughs> and, but this is also a, a story of being resourceful, of, you know, solving uh, problems with good marketing techniques and so on. But, you know, just to begin with, for people who have not seen Pitch Black, you will know, however, maybe the sequels, we were given more budget, such as the Chronicles of Riddick and Riddick itself and so on. But this is something that is almost like a sleeper. Um, hit, you know, a success. But um, very briefly, after crash landing on a distant planet, a group of travelers discover that Riddick, an escaped convict, isn't their sole concern. Sinister creatures hide in the shadows, waiting for the impending total eclipse and darkness to strike. The strapline fight evil with evil. And this is an interesting one to, to pick because, like I said, there were some marketing challenges, but also one where, which is something that we've seen many a time, critics were very mixed about Pitch Black. I mean, to give an example, a platform Rotten Tomatoes called Pitch Black a derivative and familiar movie. Too fully um, is far too bad to recommend to sci-fi and action fans. But on the flip side, actually, the fans really got behind it because they understood what this is. This is about a movie to be praised for the, how bold it is and how clever it is, despite its limitation in terms of budget, but also very cleverly using um, actors and actresses that only became famous after. Mm. So you had this this idea of uh, really getting into into the storyline without being distracted by, by big names. In fact, you know, when we look at the marketing and when we look at the, um, you know, the posters and, tra and trailers, no one is mentioned because, well, at the time, they were not known at all, par maybe a few TV series going, going out there. For me, what is interesting as well is back to, you know, the challenge of Pitch Black because by 2000, we've been spoiled quite a bit with sci-fi movies. You know, we, you and I have mentioned quite a few classics on two gigs of Martin podcast, but also this is a year after the Matrix, right? So yeah. you know the audiences have been spoiled a little, but this is essentially a low budget sci-fi movie. I mean, the, the to the tune of 23, 25 million dollars. Now, to give it some perspective, the same year the X-Men came out, the first you know kind of chapter, this was around seventy-five million dollars budget. Yeah. And do you remember that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The Sixth Day? Looking oh. at cloning and technology and that kind of things, this was given eighty-two million dollars. You know, um, so you you really are looking at this low-ranking kind of uh, production. This was released in February two thousand, which is hardly your most romantic film to take <laughs> your you know your partner to. And oddly, as a marketing challenge, the very same day of Boiler Room, also starring Vin Diesel, which we know in our plays Riddick. Add on to that some complexity where the film Pitch Black was being produced by a company called Polygram, Polygram, which is no longer with us because Polygram was then bought by Universal Pictures, who in turn gave the distribution duties to a subsidiary called USA Films. So talk about layers and too many cogs <laughs> and so on. And despite all those challenges, Pitch Black managed to literally you know, work their way through into the hearts and minds of the fans. And you have this fascinating, if you look at the, the numbers, it's great to look at the the revenue 
So week one, it does pretty well, actually, end up in, in position number three. Week two and three, it kind of lose grounds. And in week four and five, it rockets back up to the yeah. pole position because by then, word of mouth marketing word has mouth. taken over. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I... I I see Van Diesel now. Obviously, he's a big star. Everybody knows him, the Fast and Furious films. But, uh, yeah, back then, who is this guy? In fact, if they put that name on the poster, Van Diesel, you might have thought that, that was actually one of the characters in the film <laughs> as opposed to the actor because Van Diesel sounds to me like a character in a movie as opposed to the name of an actor. Yeah, because, interestingly, the reason Pitch Black um, w came back to mind was on Netflix, we were looking for something to watch with Denise, and they put both Triple X and Triple X, The Return of, of Xander Cage, back-to-back, -back, and yeah. we were reminiscing, thinking, oh, is that when we discovered all of us Vin Diesel? And I went, no, no, it was before that, because... Pitch Black is when we discover Vin Diesel. It's similar to The Transporter and Jason Statham. You know, we, yeah. he's done work before, but it's this is the one that propelled it. But you're right, his name and the others, for that matter, is absent from the 2000 version of posters, trailers, and, and teaser content. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the marketing, Pascal. Well. The, the thing is, you know, we must back to this idea of this is the reason why this movie is worthy of consideration is back to limitations, constraint, which leads to using more imaginative solutions. Because actually, if you look at the official post of 2000, one could be forgiven to think that this was given to your young nephew. And it's just <laughs> a simple montage of the term pitch black, fight evil with evil. And this weird, very simplistic, I would say almost too simplistic kind of, um, you know, planetary montage uh, and then this kind of glow effect on a face. You, only if you've seen the film do you understand what that represents. And then below, you know, a very, very low font, the, the production team, the, the actors, the distribution and so on coming in, in February. But as, as, a, as a poster, compared to how exciting and how amazing the movie is, this doesn't do it justice, does it? Well, it's interesting. I, I don't mind that poster. Okay. Um, I quite like the fact that you can see a sort of Saturn-style ring in the background. And... Yeah, that face, there's something quite sinister about it. And when I compare it to the other two um, posters that you've put up, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of veering towards that being my favourite. I guess probably the third one, the one with the sort of green glow that's been added around the monster's heads and, and the planetary, that's probably, that probably is the best one. Um, but no, I'm not sure. I think that, that first one is actually quite striking. Good, good. Because ultimately, you're right. The attempts to improve on what would be seen to be too simplistic, or actually, on the contrary to your point, it is exactly where you want to do something iconic. Attempts to make it more colorful, to create a bit more of a montage, to maybe wrongly reveal more of the monsters, they don't work. They look even more um, you know, cheesy to me. Um, what was interesting as part of the research, what they did do as part of the marketing, is to try and cater for different markets and different mm. territories and different cultures. So one that I discovered was actually the German um, post and marketing, where they felt at the time a need for more information. So you have Pitch Black, and then in German, Planet of Darkness. So that's mm -hmm. a full title. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a longer strap line. So we move from, you know, fight evil with evil to the three kind of, uh, you know, keyword strap line used a lot, you know, total darkness, endless fear, 
and imaginable um, <laughs> horror. So you've got, you know, trying to t- entice the, the, the audience even more. So from an intriguing um, poster, then we go for the opposite, which is actually a rather long trailer for what is the, the norm. You know, we're talking about a two and a half minute trailer, whereas normally they are more the two minute mark or even the, the 90 second mark. So we watched or listened to it um, with us and, there's an interesting structure. I, I love to study the structure of trailers to see if there's some lessons in there for us. So the first 30 seconds, you've got the first the opening lines from the character Riddick, although it's not named till much, much later, but by Vin Diesel. And then the, the highlight of what is really one of the outstanding sequence in the movie, the crash sequence, which mm-hmm. is kind of throws you straight into that kind of crisis and disaster. And what is really remarkable about the movie, once again, about this low budget, it looks very, very expensive. And it's all montage of practical effects, um, miniatures, and so on. There's documentaries online. But that the first 30 seconds match almost the tempo of the movie because you begin with this almighty crash. Yeah. Then you've got 60 seconds, which is focused on, is the prisoner really your problem? No, there are worse things out there. And what is nice about the 60 second, they are leaning into the visual style of the movie. So when you watch the trailer again, um, Roger, maybe your memory went back to the very clever, the very practical way of creating a sense of being in another world mm. whilst this was filmed in Australia. But I mean, there was bleached out blue, orange, and green looks throughout the movie. You then move on to the threat, 30 seconds of we have an eclipse coming. Darkness is going to essentially allow the monsters who feel light to come out and people are going to get picked one by one. And the final 30 seconds, which is usually what you do, is an action montage with glimpses of the monsters. I mean, you really have to strain your eyes or you know, learn to freeze frame the VHS cassette <laughs> back in the days to see the monster really, really well. And then we finish with you know, final words because we start with Vin Diesel's character. You have to finish with Vin Diesel's character with a sentence, you are not afraid of the dark, are you? Yeah. No, it's a lovely structure, that, isn't it? And, uh, I mean, again... It- it just goes to show that some of the thinking that has to go not only into the movie itself, but into making that trailer something that will grab somebody's attention, something that will create intrigue, something that will make people want to go to the cinema. And you've really eloquently described how they've split that trailer into those four sections. You know, and, and it isn't just a question of, oh, we've got a film that's just shove a few scenes into the trailer to and, and get people to come along. No, there's been a lot of thought put into that to create that uh, those sections and the narrative that it, and the story without giving too much away, of course. Yeah, and you know, if you are a, a sci-fi movie fan, you want to be taken into a different world altogether. You want to be, you want to look at different aesthetics and different color schemes and different form of vision. And one thing that they realize particularly well, and this was of course a few years after Predator, is both what the monsters can see, mm. but also which will be revealed through the movie, the fact that Riddick himself has a very very specific kind of uh, vision that has been um, facilitated with. Um, surgery which he explains you know in, in the movie so his vision in the dark is also very very different and this is just all wonderful practical solutions to making a movie look more expensive and expensive than you could have afforded you know with with, with the budget which i think is just very exciting yeah and let's talk now about the 
the whole concept of, I mean, you have to create your own look. And I think that the director here had some really interesting ideas to to sort of um, almost like piggyback off the emerging internet because think back to, this was in the year two thousand the internet was in its infancy wasn't it what 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 did what did the um the director think of here yeah now that's interesting because so David Towey uh, is known primarily as a writer in fact we reviewed Waterworld who he yeah. contributed to yeah is known really for the guy behind the fugitive which is just a wonderful movie perhaps should make the list for marketing but this was really his attempt at direction as well mm. and i think within that he had inherited a bit of a entrepreneurial spirit about doing things himself not waiting for the distributors and the financiers to take decisions about the marketing and he saw a way to engage you know the fan base to essentially create these on channels and he went ahead and pushed very very hard to create a website I and mean, not just a website that would just repeat what's out there or repeat the press kit he wanted to create something that give the fans something extra so we had websites standing longer with us i tried very hard roger with the internet machine and wayback machine to find it in 2000 and this website that doesn't exist but described in an art uh, in an interview with slashfilm.com he wanted to attract the attention of the fans with video footage that was only available on the website but here's this a 20 page animated comic book yeah. and a sci-fi channel one hour special so all these were packaged into this online destination and then the forums which is what they were called then yes. and the blogs and so on took over i mean that was really interesting and innovative for the time wasn't it I'm yeah. also shuddering thinking about how long it must have taken to load some of this stuff as well, <laughs> given the, the internet speeds back in those days. But it re really innovative for the time. Now, what is interesting, you and I have praised you know, all the sci-fi movies like Prometheus and, and a few others for doing something where they extend the universe. But that was like years later, 2000, a handful of years after the birth of the public internet, as I would call it. It's really quite special. And, and this special sci-fi channel, the one-hour special, was created again with this contribution. And mm -hmm. it's lovely because they continue to tell stories. So this is essentially looking at... Um, characters played by actors who are investigating what on earth has happened to Riddick. They're looking yeah. for him. And if you're a fan, uh, you get to watch a one-hour special. You get to go through a 20-page animated comic. You watch additional content videos, and then you go in and see the film. And that extends the whole experience somewhat. And I think that would have impressed the media, who weeks later did change their mind and their tune about Pitch Black. And do you think that it was the website that prompted that change of heart, or was it just simply that they reassessed the film? I think they reassessed the film, but alongside the website, someone said, well, hang on, clearly the producers are taking this seriously. There was really a big effort in press and media coverage. And what they did do, which I discovered uh, a bit later on, they did put work in the design of the press kit. And normally a press kit is a Word document. Back then it would have been a Word document. Mm -hmm using maybe an old version of Microsoft 95, like yeah. I mentioned in earlier. So that it was a Word document, some very heavily compressed images, you know, back to 2000, maybe a very, very short of video footage. But what they did here, they actually got it designed professionally. So they repeated the dark 
and atmospheric visuals of the trailer, the poster, and the movie to really emphasize that it was it was part of the same kind of environment and universe. Yeah, no. I mean, it's a shame, isn't it, that that website obviously doesn't exist mm. anymore, but it should in a way because it, it – just as just as um, we were talking about before the roller coaster becoming a sort of historical record of of past amusement rides it's a shame that we couldn't have this ex in existence as an example of an early film marketing website it would just be gorgeous to be able to see it as it was in those days and, and appreciate it for the for the step forward that it was at the time I know, you know, we've got to speak to somebody that knows more about this because you can find the posters, you can find the trailers, you can find the TV, radio spots, you can find all those assets. But the websites, they mm. always seem to disappear. And it's like, you know, the frustration, someone surely has a copy somewhere of the HTML code, you know, on the on the floppy disk or something. Yes. Because, you know, you and I and many that, that, that we know of in the industry would love to go back and, and look again about if we know where we've come from, we, we, we have a clear understanding of where we're going in the future with film marketing. Absolutely right. And may, I don't know, maybe somebody knows how to f find one of these caches because you, you, sometimes you can find caches of older websites, can't you? That's but right, perhaps yeah. they don't go back as far as, as the year 2000. Well, Pascal, I mean, I desperately need <laughs> to watch Pitch Black again now. Uh, so I have to get that trusty little app out to find out where I can watch it for free or obviously end up renting it off um, off Apple or Amazon. Thanks, thanks for choosing that one. It was quite an interesting one to talk about, especially from the website point of view. Um, you know, again, a bit of nostalgia, but also a bit of history. And, and, and I think that's really important. So everybody, thank you once again for watching Two Geeks and a marketing podcast or listening to two geeks in a marketing podcast we really do appreciate you tuning in we'd love to hear your comments about what we've talked about today your thoughts your feelings on the subjects so do get in touch with us leave a comment down below on the youtube video or talk to us on twitter we'd be delighted to hear from you so pascal thank you so much for your expert um co-hosting and thank you for uh, choosing my vlogs as your content spotlight that was a little bit humbling so so thank you for that thank you everybody go out there until next time go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right i was roger edwards and he was pascal fintoni mm -hmm.